Amen. You can be seated. John, brother, why don't you come on up? Share God's word with us. How we doing? Three of you are doing well. That's fantastic. Some of you might not have made it quite out of your Sunday nap. That's okay. Hopefully you will uh, awaken now, or if not, you'll just catch the rest of it during the sermon, and we'll all turn off the lights and leave you here in the pews. Good to see you. Uh, I'm glad to be back with you. I want to invite you to take your Bibles, turn over to the Newer Testament, to the Gospel of John. Newer Testament, the Gospel of John, we're going to be in chapter 9. Now, when it comes to the Bible, we talked a little bit this morning about what the Bible actually is. For a lot of us, we forget the sacred endeavor of giving ourselves to the Scripture. We forget that the Word of God is not just some sort of textbook. It's not some sort of archaic work that we have a difficult time trying to connect our lives. But we believe by faith that the Word of God is living and it's active and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. That through the Word of God, God has revealed Himself. The apex of His revelation is Jesus. Jesus put it this way, If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Hebrews chapter 1 tells us that long ago and in many times, in many ways, God spoke to us by the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us through the Son. And so when we come to the Scripture, when we open our Bibles together, we know that this is not just you listening to me. We did not come here tonight to be entertained. We did not come here tonight to hear a lot of my opinions. We came here tonight because we've been rescued and saved from sin set free, and that in Christ Jesus, he has given us everything we need for life and godliness, and the means of his sanctification happens partly due to his word. Jesus put it this way, sanctify them by your truth, your word is truth. And so, as we gather around the scripture tonight, I pray that you will uh, come to the scripture with expectant hearts. Now, there's a couple of things I said about the Scripture a moment ago that for some of you, you're like, I don't know why I said that. I called it the Newer Testament. I called it the Newer Testament on purpose. Some of you are like, now nah, I did Bible drill, right? Attention, present sword. Try not to cut anybody, right? And so, why do I call it the older and newer? Well, I do that for a reason, because if we just call things old in our culture, what do we think? How do we feel about old things in our culture? We always think we need to upgrade them, Right? Sorry, Grandma, you're, we're, getting, we're getting an upgrade, right? We, we, when we approach old things, we are not a people who value antiquity. We are not a people who think that there is a whole lot of value in the old and ancient ways. But I want you to know, as followers of Jesus, we have the faith that has been once for all delivered to the saints and that it is bringing that forward, not us coming up with some newly devised ideas. God has told us who he is, and he has revealed himself in the pages of Scripture. So we're going to find ourselves in the Gospel of John. Now, as we talk about um, the Gospel of John, uh, there's a few things I want to make sure we touch base on. So when I say gospel, what does gospel mean? Good news? Well done, scholars. Now, when we go to the word gospel and we talk about good news, there are extra biblical places where the word euangelion, which is the Greek word for gospel, are used. Traditionally, it was used when kings would go off to war. And there would be battles, and there might be skirmishes here and there, and news of the battles and news of the war, people would wait, because if the king lost, you were in great jeopardy. You were in danger. 
And so what would happen is, at the conclusion of the battle, this victorious king would dispatch a messenger. And this messenger would run ahead of the king and his armies, and he would go to every hamlet and village and place and town, and he would run through there, and he would announce, I have good news. The king is conquered. The king reigns. Be at peace all as well. We have the best news. King Jesus has conquered, and he reigns. Be at peace. All is well. And for a lot of people, there's confusion around the gospel. We have a lot of different ideas about what the gospel is, but 1 Corinthians chapter 15 tells us it's the things of first importance. That Christ came in accordance with the scripture. He lived in accordance with the scripture, crucified, dead, buried, and resurrected on the third day. That's the good news. Jesus rescues sinners by his own work. And so when we come to this, we're in the gospel of John because we also call the first four books of the Newer Testament gospels, right? Now, when it comes to the gospels, we call Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we call them synoptics. And we leave John out of that list. Why do we leave him out of the list? Well, John has a laser-like focus, and he won't let us get off the path. John, John will not let us read too much into the text. John has one purpose. He gives us his own purpose statement in John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. He said, and Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. So when you read John, John's already telling you, hey, if you're wanting to find out everything that Jesus did, this is not the exhaustive work on that. As a matter of fact, the next chapter he's going to say, we couldn't even keep it in, we don't have enough scrolls to keep it all together. But he said, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John's different from the others. The others give you a synopsis of the life and ministry of Jesus. Matthew begins with all these brilliant genealogies to connect, connect us to the Older Testament. Mark is like a teenager with ADHD telling the story of Jesus. Scholars like to call it intercalation, so you can hold that there, but it's really, have you ever tried to talk to a teenager with ADHD? Some of you are like, yes, every day. So Mark will be telling a story, and he just goes off and he tells another story, and then he might come back, he might not. So, for instance, in Mark, you'll be reading, and he'll say, um, there was this leader named Jairus, and he came down from the synagogue. He's a really important guy. He had a child that was very sick, and so he came to Jesus, and Jesus was headed to his house. We were going, oh, there was a woman? Just like was in the crowd, like, touching him. Jesus was like, who? We were like, mm-hmm. He was like, no. That's the way Mark tells the story of Jesus. Read it for yourselves. Then you move over to Luke, the smart kid, the Gentile, doctor, lawyer, and Luke gives brilliant details. Luke, um, uh, just this is for those of you who enjoy a little history, William Ramsey was a gifted archaeologist who set out, his only mission in life that he started out with was he wanted to disclaim the, prove, the, the truth of Christ, the veracity of Luke's claims on Christ. And so this archaeologist, starting from an atheistic bias, went to try to disprove Luke. Two things happened along the way. One, by God's grace, he came to believe that Jesus Christ was the risen king and came to faith in him. And number two, he says that Luke is the foremost historian that has ever lived. So when you read in Luke, there are brilliant details that are given. Luke is very meticulous in places and times and rulers, and it's, and it's, a, it's a wonderful way that he does that. Luke also, ladies, he's very favorable in his treatment of women. You're welcome. It's like Ladies Home Journal in the Newer Testament, all right? And so then you arrive at John, and John is completely different. 
Luke gave us the birth account. He started with John the Baptist and rolled us through. Mark didn't give any birth account. He just started with the ministry of Jesus. Matthew started with the genealogy, but John is different. John's not just talking to Jewish people to accept monotheism. John's talking to Gnostics, Greeks. And so when John starts, he starts with something so deep that it just boggles the mind. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was God, and the Word was with God. John doesn't want to let us get any other place than to realize Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, we may have life in his name. So tonight, we're going to be in chapter 9, and we're going to do something terribly dangerous. We're going to go the whole chapter. I heard that I preached way too short this morning, so I feel like I have something to make up for tonight. Some of y'all are like, oh no. So we're going we're gonna, to uh, read John chapter 9. I would invite you to stand with me as we honor the reading of God's Word together. John chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. The Scripture says this, As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and he made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and he said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and he washed and he came back seeing. And the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. And he just kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes open? He said, the man called Jesus. He made mud and anointed my eyes. And he said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and I washed and I received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I don't know. So they brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now, it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? Parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we do not know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he's of age, ask him. So, for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. But there is one thing I do know. Though I was blind, now I see. And they said, well, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, you're his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. 
The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered him, you were born in utter sin, and you would teach us? They cast him out. When Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. He worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. And some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. Thank you, O oh God, for your word. Thank you, O oh God, for your kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. I pray now, O oh God, that as we give ourselves to the scripture, would you help us, Spirit of the living God, guide us into truth. Give us illumination of hearts and minds that we might understand. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Oh God, I freely confess before thee that there's nothing good about John Nix except for Jesus Christ. And so I pray that it would be him that we see most of all. I pray now, oh God, you take my mind, my mouth, my heart. I'm yours. I'm your glad servant. Oh, would you speak to us tonight? Would you rescue and save for your own namesake? Be glorified in this place. Bless us. Help us now as we turn ourselves to the word. Make the book alive to us. May we receive it with submissive hearts, and in glad obedience, may we go forth and live these things out. For I pray it in the name of Christ. Amen. You may be seated. So, what an incredible story. I, I mean, here, here we have Jesus, and, and he's making his way, and they come upon this blind man, and we're given a little bit of some detail from John. This is congenital blindness. Uh, this guy was born blind. He's never seen anything in his entire life. And so there is an impromptu meeting around this man who was born blind. And as they gather around this man, they begin to ask questions as if he had no feelings and he wasn't there. The questions, so insensitive, so probing, so condemning. Rabbi, who sinned? Was it this guy? Is it his sin? Is that why he's blind? Or was it his parents? And Jesus answers in a way that is a little bit unexpected. He said, it's not that this man sinned or his parents. He was born blind that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, it's important for us to unpack a couple of things as we look at this. One, uh, Jesus is not disavowing the connection between suffering and sin. Jesus is just unwilling to let them make this generalization that in every case it had to be this man or his parents. In Scripture we read and sometimes there are things that happen and the suffering is due to sin. One of my favorites is in the, the book of Numbers when Miriam gets all mad at Moses' wife. Sister-in-law got ill, right? And so she starts talking bad about Moses' wife. And God tells them all to get out here. And so Aaron and Miriam and Moses all come together. Brothers and sister. 
And the cloud descends, and when the cloud goes up, Miriam is as white as she can be with leprosy. Now, a couple of things for you Bible scholars, you may enjoy this. Uh, Moses' wife was a Cushite, which means she was probably black. So I think it's very interesting that God turned Miriam solid white when the cloud lifted. You can study that on your own. And so Moses has to intercede on her behalf. But we look at the Apostle Paul. He was afflicted physically, and he had this thorn in the flesh, and over and over and over, he said, God, take this from me. And God said, nope, no, no, my grace is sufficient for you. See, what Jesus is disavowing here is that you cannot say with a blanket statement that when there is physical suffering, you cannot just say that every time it had to be that individual or someone close to them. He said, no, neither one. Now, I want you to think, as God exercises his sovereignty and providence over the situation, because God said, as a matter of fact, this congenital blindness took place so that the works of God might be displayed in him. This is a thought that for us can make us very nervous. If you think about the theology behind this, as you wrestle with this vast and big God, I hear questions all the time, like, why do bad things happen to good people? So let me clarify that for you. That only happened one time, and he volunteered. His name was Jesus. For there's none good but God. Okay, so when somebody asks you, why do bad things happen to good people? It only happened one time, and he volunteered. His name was Jesus. And so in this, when we look at suffering, we want to have this simple construct for us. And the disciples say, well, this guy's blind, so it had to be him or it had to be his parents. And Jesus says, no, neither one. He suffers from congenital blindness that God's glory might be displayed. Now, for some of you, you may have had the benefit of seeing this in your own life. But it's been my privilege and my pain to walk with saints through suffering in life from time to time. And it's during those times that at times I, I cannot imagine more heights of joy and my faith being inflamed by these faithful saints as I watch their bodies deteriorate. And all they do is tell me that Jesus is good and they're going as I watch saints from their hospital bed, and they're the ones with all the wires hooked up to them. They're the ones with all the questions. They're the ones with all those things. And nurse comes in after nurse, and they say things like, can I pray for you today? Do you know Jesus? And so as we walk through this, Jesus says this suffering is here so that the works of God might be displayed. Because we got to work the works of him who sent me while it's day, because night is coming and no one's going to be able to work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Something happened. This blind man has been sitting and he's been listening to this entire discussion. Can you imagine what it was like for him to hear the conversation? Who is so wretched? Is it this guy? Was he to suffer the insults of people that he didn't even know? Can you imagine, since it's a rabbi that's being addressed, was he eagerly listening to hear that perhaps it was his parents' fault because then he would have somebody to blame for his condition? Perhaps he thought it was just some cruelty that he was about to experience. But Jesus says, 
Is this way that the works of God might be displayed in him? And while that question is happening, the noise of Jesus spitting into the ground, making mud happens. This man who cannot see suddenly the sensations of his body as he has this mud, this compress, warm from the saliva of Jesus' mouth, gritty from the dirt and the Middle Eastern sand that is rubbed across his eyes. There must have been a, a lot of questions as all of these feelings and stimuli flood his mind. And he's given a directive from Jesus. He, he makes this uh, mud and he puts it on his eyes. He anoints him and he says, I want you to go and I want you to wash in the pool of Siloam. And John gives us a little parenthetical thought. and He says it means scent. Now, I want to just make sure we don't miss this little detail because I love this detail. So John is telling us about Jesus. Jesus is the one sent from God. And he sent the man born blind to the pool that is called sent. Do you see the pattern? Hey, every time I read that, I'm like, okay, here's a God calling card, right? Here we have Jesus, the sent one. God sent his son. They called him Jesus. So the sent one sent the man who had mud on his eyes to the pool called sent to wash. What must it have been like? Oh, this is not some abstract thing that we hear about in the laboratory. This is truth. This is flesh and bone. This is earthly experience. What must it have been like as this man somehow makes his way to the pool of Siloam? Perhaps he wasn't far away. Perhaps he had some family or friends to help guide him there. Perhaps he just had memorized exactly how many steps it was because he would need some water from time to time to sustain him as he begged. I don't know if he felt his way along. I don't know if he was led by the hand. But at some point, as his hands plunge into the water, he'd felt water before, but he'd never seen it. And as the water splashed into his face, and as it ran through his beard, and every drip left a ripple in the water, what was it like? Was it blurry at first? Did it just burst immediately? When suddenly, this congenitally blind man from birth, suddenly light begins to race through his eye into the cornea, onto the retina, and exploding in visual colors he's never seen. Water to finally see what it looks like. A shadow and reflection as the waves ripple out beneath his face. What is it like when you see for the first time ever? There at the pool of Siloam, with water dripping from his face, experiencing something he had never seen before. His world had been complete darkness. His whole life had been spent in darkness, and now the light flooded his eyes. He saw things he had never seen before. What's it like? What's it like? when I, I just imagine him coming up from, the, from this pool and he's sprinting around. I can just imagine grabbing people. Maybe he recognized their, their, their faces from touch. Maybe he recognized their voices. Can you imagine? He just said, I see you. You're uglier than I thought. I see you. Right? The sky is so just blue. I've heard blue my whole life. You just imagine the ruckus that suddenly breaks out and as the crowd starts to rush around, people are going, that's the guy we saw begging. That's the guy who's been sitting there. People are like, what? And the other people, you know, the skeptics of the group, 
Nope. Looks a lot like him, maybe. It's not him. No way. Right? And I love this guy. He's running around going, I'm that man. I'm the man. I'm the man. Until they don't know what to do. So they do the only thing that they know is reasonable. Obviously, the miraculous has taken place. So they go to the group that's supposed to be able to inform them and help them understand. They go to the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the conservatives of the day. See, a lot of times we read the scripture, we miss out on this because when there was some autonomy amongst the Jews, they didn't have complete freedom, but there was some autonomy. And because of their strict religious code, Rome had granted them a certain allowance where they could handle some matters themselves, not all, which is why Jesus had to go to Pilate. But during this time, there was a group called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was a ruling body of 70 plus the high priest. The largest group that made it up during Jesus' time were, were the Sadducees. The Sadducees were the liberal group. They did not believe in the miraculous. They did not believe in resurrection after death. They did not believe in all of the scriptures. They held only to the Torah. And then there was a smaller group. They were the conservatives. They were the Pharisees. They were desperately committed to the law. And they had taken these 10 principles that God had laid down. They exploded them to over 637. People came to them when they needed to know, how am I supposed to live? What am I supposed to do? What does the Bible have to do with what I do at my job tomorrow? How many steps can I take? It's Sabbath. What am I supposed to do about this? And so when this miraculous thing happens, they rush this man to the Pharisees. The Pharisees are supposed to be those that are most acquainted with God, most familiar with his teachings. So they rush him in. Now, many of them were already thinking this is a setup. They're just, you know, they're, they're just messing with us here. Surely this was not true. And so they, they bring him in, and when he, when he gets there, it's a Sabbath day. And John just wants us to know that it's a Sabbath day. And so they bring him in there, and the Pharisees ask him, How'd you receive your sight then? He put mud on my eyes, I washed, I seen. And some of them immediately said, well, then he's not from God. He's not keeping the Sabbath. He's not from God. But then you notice, as soon as that group comes and says he's not from God, he doesn't keep the Sabbath, others going, what? Excuse me? Not from God. There's never been a record in all of Scripture of congenital blindness being healed. How do you, what do you mean he's not from God? How could you do this sign if he's not from God? And so very different from religious people today, there was a division among them. I'll just leave that one there. So they asked him, what do you think? And this guy, his faith is growing. And why wouldn't it? He's got all the confidence in the world. Because he's a prophet. Now for us, we're going, prophet? That's the best you can come up with? See, we have the benefit. We're looking backwards. We've got the full canon of Scripture. We, we read with already knowing the end. And so we have a bias when we read Scripture. When this man says he is a prophet, that is huge news. There hadn't been a prophet in Israel for over 400 years. There had been silence from the Lord. As you close out the Old Testament canon, you finish with the last of the Italian prophets, Malachi. The Bible joke. It's Malachi. All right? Some of y'all are like, I don't get it. It's all right. It's been 400 years. 400 years with no word from the Lord. Nothing. So when this man declares to the Pharisees he's a prophet, that is a bold declaration. 
said, well, he's a prophet. Now, they didn't even think he had been blind. They still thought that this was all a, a, an elaborate ruse to get him going until they did what, you know, everybody does, get his parents. You know, when you get in trouble at school, I know probably none of y'all did, but I was on a first-name basis with the administration at my school. My mom would gladly stand up and testify to that. So they're like, go get his parents. His parents come in. They bring him in. They say, what's your son? Was he born blind? Now there's a couple of things that I wonder about in the story, and we just don't have the details. So I don't want to over-allegorize or read anything into the text that's not there. But there's a question in my mind that sits in this moment. In this moment, I wonder if he had seen his parents yet or not. I wonder if this is the first time. Mom's in the presence of the Pharisees because it says that the parents were brought in. That's already unusual. But in their presence, she wouldn't be able to speak. It would only be the father that would be allowed to speak. But I know about mamas, and I sure know about mamas and sons. What's it like then, Mom? Oh, she and her husband, you have all those hopes and dreams when the little one comes into the world. I mean, he's thrilled. You just, there's all those things. And it wasn't long after they had given birth that the midwives, having cared for her and things going along, that they recognized that something wasn't right. At some point, the conclusion was reached that this new little baby of theirs could not see. What sort of weight does a parent carry? When the child doesn't do everything the other kids do. What sort of weight the parents carry when there are children that are locked in prisons of suffering for all of their existence. Oh, that mom knows that boy. She knows the familiar tug at the edge of her robe. She can't go anywhere without her. He knows what her face feels like. He knows what her hand feels like. She's traced his face a million times. He's traced hers back. She's declared her love for him over and over and over. She's reassured her son that she couldn't love him anymore. His eyes worked perfectly. And now, in an audience, religious leaders, they got to give an answer. Is this your son? When was he blind? How does he now see? The father speaks with clarity. Yes, we know that's our boy. There's no mistake. But how much fear does it take when they have to say, but we don't know how it happened, and we're not going to tell you how it happened or even venture a guess. You're going to have to ask him. He's of age. Ask him. What does that mean? It means we've at least gotten to bar mitzvah. It means we at least are able to give an answer for ourselves. This is something that this young man had struggled with his whole life, at least into his teenage years, and we don't know beyond that, but we know that he's of age, so you can ask him. How much fear does it take when parents finally have a son that sees for the first time for them to be so reluctant to say? And so the parents are dismissed. And they bring him in for a second time. And they say, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. And I love this. And he answers verse 25. He said, whether he is a sinner, I don't know. But here's what I know. 
I woke up in darkness just like I do and have done every day of my life. But I can see. I can see. Let me tell you what the best apologetic for the gospel is. Your faithfulness. Walking in patterns of regular obedience and love with Jesus so that the evidence is written all over your life. Oh, we can argue about how old the earth is. We can argue doctrines. We can argue methodology. You can't argue with I once was blind and now I see. So he said, I, I don't know, but I can tell you this. I can see. And so they said to him, well, what did he do? How did he open your eyes? And at this point, this guy is getting frustrated. And you just sense the tension. He said, and they ask him, what did he do? How did he open your eyes? In verse 27, he said, I already told you, and you won't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Because, you know, there's a whole difference between hearing and listening. Don't worry, men. Your wives can tell you what that means. At our house, I'm a gifted non-listener. And so my wife uh, and I, over our 21, almost 22 years of marriage, have developed a code, and this is what my wife has to tell me on a regular basis. John, I need you to listen with your eyes. That's code for me, saying, big boy, you better pay attention to what I got to tell you right now, or we're going to have some issues, right? And when mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. So this guy, I already told you, you're not listening to me. Now, you don't want to hear it. I've already told you. And then, oh, he messed up. Then he just, man, he throws it down. You ever had that moment when the words come out and you know, oops? Every dude does, right? He said, why? You want to be one of his disciples too? At that point, he needed his PR department to kick in and do something right there, right? And, and you could just hear the language. They reviled him. You're his disciple. We're disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses. We don't even know where this guy comes from. And so this guy just fires back. We say, well, this is impressive. You're supposed to be the guys that know the most about the Bible, closest to the Lord, and you have no fat, hairy clue. What good are you guys? Now, that's a rough translation. It's a very rough translation. But me, he said, it's amazing. You don't even know where it comes from. He opened my eyes. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners. And if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. And he knows this. This is his history. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. You don't think they didn't know, had thought about it? Never has this happened. It's amazing. You guys are supposed to understand when God intervenes in miraculous ways, when he does things that are outside the normal day-to-day -day experience. You're supposed to be the ones to help me with this. You're supposed to be the ones that can connect me to the Scripture and help me know. And you don't understand, and now you're mad at me because I'm telling you you're not listening. And then here we are. We make it all the way full circle. They said to him, you were born in sin. Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born? You were born in sin. Don't give us a lecture. Threw him out. Threw him out. Big deal. Yeah, son. 
see this hair that he's been thrown out. He comes to him. And in this encounter, verse 36, verse 35, he heard, and he went and found him. And he goes to him and he says, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And the man answered, Who is he, sir, that I may believe him? Now, you've you got to understand, this is the first time that this guy's ever seen Jesus. Last time he was in Jesus' presence, he couldn't see. And with all the excitement of the day and being ushered into a meeting and in and out and thrown out and all these things, he doesn't even recognize that it's Jesus. And Jesus comes up to him and he says, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he says, well, who is he, sir, that I might believe? And I love Jesus' answer. Verse 37, Jesus said to him, you've seen him. You've seen him. And it is he who is speaking to you. And the man declares, Lord, I believe. You worship. You see, the evidence of grace was already at work in his life. There were no curative properties in the water that he washed in. It wasn't a mud compress that made his eyes work again. It was the living and sovereign God who knit him together in his mother's womb and said, let there be light. For you see, faith always lands in obedience. Faith always lands in obedience. Same way as repentance does. And at this point, this man, in the presence of Jesus, he worships and he falls down. We don't know where he is in town. We don't know what's going on. We don't know who is around. But this interchange with Jesus, and he just falls and worships. And Jesus said, it's for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who may see, or, or those who see may become blind. Pharisees are listening. They're marking everything that Jesus does. There's a growing animosity. And they said, are we blind? And Jesus said, nope. If you were blind, you wouldn't have the guilt. But you're telling me that you can see clearly. Guilt remains. You're more committed to religion. You're more committed to your own pride strength of your works is where you're relying for salvation. Salvation has always come the same way, by grace, through faith. And so in this moment, this man, trapped in darkness, finds himself in glorious light. And the sent one bids us to understand that if we are followers of Jesus, we too are sent and we must do the work of him. You see, when God rescues you from sin and death, you don't belong to you anymore. You belong to him. And if you belong to him, then your call is to obey. And he says, go, make disciples. Make disciples at home, across the street, make them around the world. So my question for you tonight is this. See, having grown up inside small Baptist church in Maypearl, Texas, I was very religious. 
but I had very little love for my fellow man. And I didn't understand the beauty of loving. And my fear is that a lot of times when I travel and come into churches like this, that I find crowds of people who have filled pews year in and year out. Yet there's an emptiness inside. They have a form of godliness, but they deny the power therein. There are a lot of people who believe what I like to call the good old boy gospel. You just be a nice person and everything's going to work out. The problem is there is only one way to be reconciled to God. That's through the finished work of Jesus Christ alone. For what can wash away my sin? Nothing. And I fear that there are a lot of people who do a lot of religious things, counting on those things for their entrance into heaven. But Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one gets to the Father except by me. One of the most frightening verses in all of Scripture to me is Jesus saying that there are going to be many on that day to say, Lord, Lord. The double use of the word Lord is supposed to mean that there's a familiarity. Lord, Lord, we came to church. We went on mission trips. We, we gave to the offering. We served the homeless. We taught a Sunday school class. We sang the songs. I was in the choir. We did this. We did that. And Jesus is going to say, leave. Oh, my dear friends, let us not play religious games. Let us not think that we can save ourselves. Let us come to Jesus. And let us say, Lord, I believe. Let us rest in his finished work and not our accomplishments. Let us look to him for salvation. I bid you that if you have spent your life being very religious, I bid you come to the cross. I bid you be reconciled to God through the finished work of Jesus Christ. I implore you on behalf of the God. Be adopted. Become sons and daughters. Wherever you are, there may be some other things that you're dealing with. Some of you may have some internal things that are going on. If you're walking in regular patterns of disobedience, please repent. Turn from your sin. Let us not make light of sin. Let us make much of God's holiness. If there's someone in here that you've offended, I bid you go and be reconciled to them. Be quick to ask for forgiveness. Be quick to extend it. Let this not be a place where we gather to try to build a kingdom into ourselves and talk about how good we are. May we never look on this place as a, as a museum for saints, but as a hospital for saints. But if you're here and you're dead and your trespasses and sin, repent of your sin. Believe on the Lord Jesus. Be saved. I'm going to pray in just a moment.